Hello, it's Monday, July the 24th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to America's 45th president. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow, and you heard correctly, we're taping this on the next to last Monday in July because our guest is about to abandon the Stanford campus for his home on the East Coast. We wanted to catch him before he left town. Paul Peterson is a Hoover Institution Senior Fellow, Professor of Government, and Director of the Program on Education Policy and Governance at Harvard. He's also a Senior Editor at Education Next, a Journal of Opinion and Research, and that's our topic today, Education Public Opinion. Paul, thanks for coming into the studio. My first question, why would you want to leave Stanford in August for Boston, Massachusetts? <laughs> Bill, uh, well, why not? Boston's a great place in the summertime. People come from all over the country to go to New England. They go to Cape Cod, and, you know, you can't get to Cape Cod without going through Boston. <laughs> There's your defense of Boston. I was thinking more on the lines of humidity. Well, you know, you can have a warm day, but, you know, it really cools down by mid-August. This is People think that... Uh, Boston and Washington, D.C. are one and the same if they live in California. That's like saying San Francisco and L.A. are one and the same. Right. <laughs> in fact, it's about about 400 miles between Boston and Washington, about 350 to 400 between San Francisco and L.A. Right now, yeah. 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 about the same. Well, first, thanks for coming into studio, Paul. And second, you come today bearing data. You have a poll in your possession. It's Education Next, Annual Survey of Americans and Their Views on Education. Tell us a bit about the poll. You've been doing this now for, this is what, the 11th or 12th year that you've done the yeah, poll? Yeah, this is our 11th poll. Yeah, so we celebrated our 10th anniversary last year, and now we're starting on our second round of, of 10 this, this year. So, uh, yeah, it's very exciting to see a poll develop over time because you can sort of look at how trends are happening and, certain areas do people want to spend more money on education today than they did back then or just exactly uh, how have ideas changed over time basically you find that on many issues opinion doesn't change but that makes it all the more interesting when you find changes in public opinion all right who is your audience in the poll who are you who are you surveying well we survey a nationally representative sample of uh, adults uh, in the United States, and we have a very large sample, around 4,200, which is about four times the size of a typical sample. Uh, that allows us to do experiments with our data. So we'll sometimes divide our sample randomly in half and give one half one version of a question and the other half another version of the question and see we learn something from that. So that's one thing we do with our large numbers. Another thing we do is we oversample teachers, so we get an idea of what teachers think. Uh, separate and apart from what the public thinks. And we oversample parents. So we find out if parents think pretty much like the rest of the public, and the answer to that one is they almost always do. Not always, but almost always. And then we have sizable samples of Hispanic uh, respondents this year, and uh, usually African-American respondents, so this year we have a smaller sample of them. All right, so give us the lead of the poll. What, what stood out to you? Well, in the poll uh, this, uh, this year, 2017, I think the, the biggest news is the decline in support for charter schools. There's been a 12 percentage point decline in support for charter schools uh, in, the, in public opinion, and it's true among Republicans and Democrats alike. And we can't really account for it because of public opinion for charter schools really was quite stable uh, prior to this. Uh, pretty much uh, a, 
a, a plurality of the public supported them. If you throw out the people who don't state an opinion one side or the other, it was clear majority. It was up there around like 60% of the people were saying. Now, you still have a plurality support. Uh, more people support charter schools and oppose it. But mm -hmm. nonetheless, there's been quite a shift downward in support for charter schools. It's a growing disconnect, about a one in eight from your from your poll there. Yeah, that's a big a big deal. And and the and it's not accompanied by a, a oppos greater opposition to school choice more generally. People still support tax credits. P people still support, in fact, tax support uh, is higher than ever. Or tax credits, I should say, tax credits, which are basically vouchers. You use the tax code to reward people who send their kids to private school to reimburse them for their expenses. So a tax credit idea remains very popular. That's one of the things that's on the agenda in Washington. It's not clear whether the Trump administration is going to move forward with that, but our data says that they probably should move forward with that because that, compared to other forms of school choice, that's, that's number one. Now, vouchers, support for vouchers is about the same. Some signs of it being higher than ever before. So it's not like everything's moving in the same direction. It's that charters are down, vouchers hold their own, maybe a little up, and tax credits definitely holding their own. What does your gut tell you about the charter school answer? Why? You, obviously, you didn't change the question from year to year. I can't think of anything in the news, some terrible scandal that affected charter no, schools. No, it's the that same question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, well, okay, so here's what I would say are some possible explanations. First of all, the Obama administration supported charter schools. Uh, especially the Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan. Mm -hmm. He had been uh, the superintendent in Chicago before he became the Secretary of Education for President Obama, and he supported charter schools in Chicago. And when he becomes secretary, he launches Race to the Top. And Race to the Top rewarded those states who came up with the innovative ideas in education. And mm -hmm. one of the innovative ideas was expand your charter school program. Now, it's true that Obama didn't support charters with the enthusiasm of Betsy DeVos, uh, but still there was support from the president and especially from the Secretary of Education. And that tended to keep the uh, teacher unions quiet on the subject because they don't really like to go against the Democratic Party leadership since they're a very strong component of the Democratic Party. They contribute as much to the Democratic Party as any other single organization out there, the National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers. They have a lot of teachers at the National Convention. In 2008, they were very close to Hillary Clinton. They supported her in the primaries. Obama beats Clinton, as you know, in 2008. Uh, and therefore, he becomes the nominee despite the support of the teacher unions for his opponents. So he really doesn't own, owe them very much. Uh, now, this time, Clinton's the leader of the ticket. Right. He's got the support of the unions. She's out there, you know, she's not exactly opposing charters, but she's certainly not supporting them. And as the campaign uh, unfolds, she becomes even, as she becomes ever more confident that she's going to win this election, she becomes ever more uh, clear that she thinks that charters have their problems, that they are, they're, they're, they're making a good record at the expense of taking care of the uh, disabled or the most needy or the ones who are in need of special education. She said that on more than one occasion. So uh, I don't think she was accurate in what she said there, but that sort of clearly 
distanced herself from charter schools. So that's one thing that's out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, charter schools were on the ballot in uh, uh, the state of Washington, and they were on the ballot in the state of Massachusetts. Uh, the unions won big time in Massachusetts. They've come up with a new theme. They don't say charter schools are bad. What they say is charter schools take money away from public schools. That is really a good argument. It may not be accurate, but it's a really good argument, and they're really pushing that argument. And it could be that that argument is, is the most effective thing that's, uh, that, uh, that helps to explain this change in public opinion. It reminds me of a few years ago when there was a uh, school choice measure on the California ballot, and, um, and the way California politics work, Paul, is you put a, a measure on the ballot. The attorney general is in charge of what's called uh, summary chapter and, and title. And... Attorney generals are political, and so the attorney general usually, if he or she doesn't like that initiative, he or she gives it a very bad title. And for the school choice uh, initiative, the title was literally words to the extent of public school money for religious education. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye initiative. Well, you know, this is... uh it's very hard for vouchers or charters to win right. in a uh, referendum. Uh, anybody who comes up with that strategy should be fired. Uh, and that was quite popular here in California years, a few years back, but they gave up on it. And they should never have gone that way in Massachusetts uh, in the last election in, in 2016 because uh, the, the reason they did it is if you pick any state in the country where charters have had more success, it's been in Massachusetts. The data come in saying the charter schools are terrific in that state. Not necessarily that that's not necessarily true around the country, but it is true in Massachusetts. And uh, the governor was in support of it, and the governor is extremely popular. And they just sort of and the public opinion data showed support for charter schools. But once the union got onto this line, you know, money's being taken away from public schools. They mobilized parents. They mobilized school teachers. They had a they had a a, a ground game that was to to die for. Yeah, and you know, you've seen that. Public schools, public education is still a powerful argument here in California. For example, it's been the means to sell tax increases in California. Jerry Brown wants to raise taxes on upper-end earners in California in 2012, so he launches an initiative, and they have this all about schools. It's all about restoring money to schools, money they lost in the Great Recession. The initiative that year actually had a red apple with a white 30 on it for Proposition 30. So in California politics, teachers, firefighters, cops, nurses, they were the white hats in society. Well, if you ask the question in our poll, as we have every year since we began, uh, do you uh, think we should spend more on schools? You get about two-thirds of the public saying, yes, we should spend more money on the schools. Right. If you then say to them, well, actually, in your community, you are now spending $12,400 a year, which is more or less the average that's being spent around the country, and then you ask them that question, do you think we should spend more on schools. The support for spending more on schools drops by about 20 percentage points. There's no longer a, a majority in favor of uh, spending more. But actually, when you ask people how much do you think is being spent on schools, and we've asked that question again and again, and mm-hmm. this year we we found what we found in the past, they underestimate what's being spent by about 30%. So they think it's about 8,000, it is 12,000. Um, and so when they're actually told what it is, their enthusiasm for spending more uh, is qualified. Right. This is a Trump-related podcast, and I do want to ask you a few questions about Betsy DeVos and the Education Department. But 
let's let's close out on the poll first. Uh, the sampling of teachers, 669 teachers in your survey, and you found that 11% of their colleagues were deemed unsatisfactory, that the teachers deemed 1 in 10 of their colleagues unsatisfactory. Well, you know, I, we sort of thought that was uh, interesting because if you look at what states are doing around the country, they're going uh, to uh, principals at schools and they're saying, please rate your teachers, rate them as uh, excellent, uh, as uh, very uh, good, uh, satisfactory, or unsatisfactory. And two-thirds of, of the teachers are rated very good and excellent by the public at large. So, you know, people do like their teachers. M most teachers are, are respected by parents and by the public as a whole. Uh, the ratings are at least that high that principals give out. But really what separates general opinion and teacher opinion as expressed in the polling data and what principals say is when you get around to ineffective teachers or unsatisfactory teachers. So there are very few teachers are identified as unsatisfactory by a principal, like about 1%, or in some states it's 3%. Colorado, they found it that way. Florida, they found it that way. In every state where they've done this, they, they rate very few teachers as unsatisfactory. But if you ask teachers themselves mm -hmm. about their colleagues in their own school, we're not asking them about teachers around the country. We're asking about the teachers in their own school. They will come in with a number of about 11% on average. So that we got last year, we get it again this year. So that's a very consistent finding. Okay. Do you shrug that off? Is that a cause for concern? Is that a cause for alarm? Uh, well, you know, the teacher is the most important element in the education of a child that's influenced by the school. Of course, the parent is the most important thing next to the child himself or herself. If a child wants to learn, child will probably learn. Child doesn't want to learn, it's going to be hard to get that child to learn. Right. Parents are very important. Brothers and sisters are important. Not as important as the parents, but the parents. Mom's really important. Dad's sort of important. Dads are more important today than they were in the past. But when you get to school, the person who's the most important is the teacher. You know, it's not the textbooks. It's not the buildings. It's not anything else about the school. It's not the facilities. It's the teacher that counts. So if you've got bad teachers in a classroom, you're not going to be learning if you're a child. So, yes, it is... a if we could improve our teaching force by just replacing the most ineffective teachers with an average teacher, we could lift the performance of our school system to the highest levels in the world. That would be the simplest thing. No, that's not so simple to do. But if we could do that, that would be the reform that could uh, bring us to the highest level right. of the world. Now, you were kind enough to write a column for uh, Hoover's Eureka publication, which is out today, and you talked about education in California, and you made the connection between teacher quality and economic growth. Well, yes, uh, economic growth is very important if we are going to survive through the 21st century, and economic growth has slowed down from 3% down to 2%, maybe less than 2%, and it's been that way throughout the 21st century. So this is a cause of concern. And the element that's most important for economic growth is the quality of our human capital. We know that countries that have high human capital grow at much higher rates than countries that have low human capital. 
The best example out there is Korea. At the end of World War II, and especially after the Korean War, human capital in South Korea was one of the lowest in the industrialized world. If you look today at people in the age court that were growing up during that period of time, they are the lowest scoring in, in, in industrialized countries in the world, or very much at the bottom, in the top, bottom 10%. Today, young people are at the top in Korea. They have managed to transform their educational system from one of the worst in the world to one of the best in the world, and they've done it in a 50-year period of time or 60-year period of time. That's an amazing accomplishment. And of course, everything else follows in South Korea. You have this incredibly productive society that is now a dynamic force in the world, uh, threatened by this country to the north of them. But it's all driven by this underlying improvement in the quality of their workforce, which begins with the, their approach to education, which they put together a system where they had very high expectations for students and the family and the schools cooperated together to get that. So yes, if the United States could do something about the quality of its educational system, it could be growing at a faster rate downstream. It always is a delay. You know, it's going to take 20 years, 40 years before you really get all of the benefits from an improved educational system. But uh, the benefits are there. And if you're going to get benefits from a, a better educational system, the first thing to do is to get more effective teachers. Right, now here's where we make the bridge to Donald Trump. <clears throat> in terms of creating better teachers, getting better teachers in the system, Paul, is this a national action? Is this a national course of action coming out of Washington? Or is this done on a state-by-state, 50-state basis? Well, you know, No Child Left Behind was the effort made by George W. Bush to mm -hmm. deal with this problem. He was fully aware of it. And he thought, well, let's, if we put into place an accountability system and we go out there and test students in grades four and five and up through eight and again in high school, then we will be able to put pressure on local school districts, local school administrators, local principals to improve their schools. But the missing link in No Child Left Behind was there was nothing about asking students to improve their performance. Students were not held accountable. And there was nothing that said teachers had to be effective if they were going to keep their job. So, you know, it all sounded great, except it really didn't get down to the basic in, in the basic realities is that teachers and students are the what, what happens within a school. So now you have, this. people are discouraged about the whole new child left behind and that whole regime. And now they're trying to say, let's go back to letting the local school districts run the schools. Um, but there's really, you know, very little out there that is saying, okay, we've got to have good teachers and we've got to expect more of our students. Got, where's the pressure points coming from? Who's pushing that? Mm -hmm. It's not coming from the state level and it's not coming from the national level. Now, the one thing that could happen is that if you create school choice at, at scale, then you would have the competition among schools that could induce a greater concern about the quality of the education that's being provided. And you do see some evidence of that in certain places. Uh, 
The most exciting development is in uh, Louisiana, in New Orleans, where you have now a charter school system. The whole school system is charterized, and it's much better than it was at the time the hurricane destroyed the existing educational system in that city, which has to have been one of the worst in the country. Now, we have a, a steadily improving school system in the country which has put into place that kind of competition. And you have it in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is about half the kids in Washington, D.C. are going to charter schools. The other half are going to the public school. They're in heavy competition with one another. The school district of Columbia has improved more rapidly than the schools of any state in the country and more rapidly than any other city in the country. It's a really remarkable achievement that's happened in Washington, D.C., you know, beneath the radar. Very few people are talking about it. The Republicans don't like to talk about it, and the Democrats don't like to talk about it. But it is happening there in, in, the, in the nation's capital. So, yes, I believe competition could do it, but, you know, at this point, only 6% of our students are in charter schools, that really doesn't create a lot of competition nationwide. The voucher program that exists is only a few hundred thousand people, and that's just too small when you've got 50 million uh, students in our public schools. So, you know, the amount of competition we now have is, is minuscule, and the accountability system has broken down. So how, we, how are we going to get improvement? Well. Betsy DeVos says we're going to get it through greater school choice. And that's great, and it's nice to have those uh, images being presented to the public, but it's very hard to leverage an educational system from Washington. Right. So by the time this podcast is aired, uh, the Trump administration will have been in office for seven months. What is your, give me your first impressions on, on Betsy DeVos and their approach toward education. Well, Betsy DeVos is learning. Do you know Betsy DeVos? I do not. You do not. I do not. Uh, Betsy DeVos uh, was very active in the school reform movement, but she had not been an administrator in the school system. She had not been a superintendent. She had not been a state superintendent. Right. So there were a lot of details about the educational system that she uh, had to learn and is still having to learn. And the process of appointing... Uh, deputy uh, secretary of education, uh, assistant deputies, dep undersecretary, all, the, all those appointments that fill out an administrative structure, mm -hmm. uh, very little has happened. Now, exactly why very little has happened is something I'm not privy to. Is it because there's so much opposition from the Democrats on Capitol Hill? Is it because the going through the records to uh, see whether the financial situation of a, an appointee makes them a candidate who can be appointed. Right. All of these elements come into play, but um, this administration is having a lot of difficulty filling positions beneath the level of the secretary in lots of departments, including education. It is a complicated story. Uh, there are appointees, there are people who might apply who are not welcome, just based on their background, what they may or may have said about the president in the past. So they're out. There's a no-fly list for them. There are some people who've applied who, are, frankly, are stuck in the pipeline. 
and that's on the White House. That's the White House's problem. And then there are others, Paul, who are making the calculation, should I go into this administration? Is this the right career move for me or not? And that's a lot more complicated given that it's Donald Trump than it is for past administrations. So it's a, it's a whole amalgam. But let me ask you this question. Do we need a federal education secretary? Well, we will have one. I mean, <laughs> we, we have a Department of Education. It's not going to go away. We but no, have... but if, I put, if I put Paul Peterson in charge of Washington for a day, if you're the king, you're the Lord Overseer of Washington, is that job gone? Uh, it, that's not a position that I'm qualified to fill. So no, no, I'm I, saying I, would, that, would that job be gone? Would you eliminate that department? Oh, Countless I, Republicans running for president no, want to no, abolish no, there it. There are some very good things that are done by the uh, fact that we have a federal law on education. Probably the most important one is the old law that was signed by uh, Gerald Ford, PL 94-142, which created a common uh, arrangement uh, for the education of the disabled. Before that, you had disabled people being denied the opportunity to go to school on the basis of they were deaf or they were blind or they were retarded. No, no arrangements were, were made for them. And uh, we need, and, and you couldn't do this state by state because if one state did it and another state didn't, you'd get a migration of disabled people into the places where uh, the services were being provided. So you had to come up with a common plan. And that common plan was provided for in that law, and that's a very popular law. It's never been altered. It's never been changed. It's very hard to get any political person on either side of the aisle to criticize it. It's, it's hard to imagine that we would go back to something before 1974. Okay, so you're keeping the department. Does she have the right background for the job? I think it's great to have somebody coming in from the outside. I think that's really valuable. I think Obviously the insiders in education are they, usually they, they all, they cried foul tied when she into was the old past. Mm -hmm. Pardon? They cried foul when she was appointed because they said, well, she's never worked in a school system. So that's to her credit. Okay. It was time for so you a, like the outsider a new brush. Mm -hmm. uh, it, but you have to realize that that person is going to have to uh, – study the situation for a while before they're right. going to know exactly what to do because they don't know all the ins and outs. Mm -hmm. If you want to have the insiders run, there's plenty of insiders to do it. If you don't want change, then appoint those insiders. But if you're going to have some new uh, thinking brought into our educational system, and if you want to have uh, a secretary that's truly committed towards school choice, you've got to go outside the system. It's very difficult to find somebody within the system who is committed to school choice as their number one objective. All right, what else should she be pursuing besides school choice? What else, what else do you think should be on her agenda? Oh, deregulate. deregulate. There's a lot of excessive uh, regulation of our state and local system, and there was a lot in the pipeline uh, that was going to extend that uh, had give me, the give me, give me administration. Give me an example of what you mean by, by well, regulation. Well, um, the best example are the Dear Colleague letters that come out of the uh, uh, Civil Rights Office. The Civil Rights Office sent out uh, two years ago to every school district in the country a letter that went on for 40 pages. And in this letter it said, Dear Colleague, uh, we want to have equal educational opportunity in the United States. That's the law of the land. And to make sure that that's the case, we want the same amount of money spent in every school on kids of different racial backgrounds. And we want to see that every classroom 
has the same racial distribution. All the advanced placement courses have to have the same racial distribution. And if it's not that way, you've got to give us detailed account as to why it's not that way. And the library, it, all schools has to be, it, it went on and on. There was laying, it was for total federal control of all of the inputs into the educational process. That, was, that went out there. And, it, and the enforcement mechanism was being put into place. By go, when the enforcement mechanism was, you would go to a particular school district. There was one in New York that was selected. I've forgotten the name of it. Uh, and, and then you say, oh, you are not complying with these guidelines. Now, these guidelines have never been placed in the Federal Register, which is what regulations are. First of all, with federal regulations, you're supposed to have a draft regulation. Then you have public comments. Then you have a final regulation. that has got to be approved by OMB, and then you finally put it in the Federal Register. It's a right. long, complicated process. It's going to take two, three years. These dear colleague letters were going out without any of that process at all, with no, no vetting at all, and no conversation about the content of it. And yet, the Office of Civil Rights was saying, well, these were the guidelines and they have the force of law. And there were some court cases decided out there that gave them that leverage. Now, I've just given you one example, mm -hmm. but there's a host of them. In fact, the whole lavatory uh, story, which everybody knows about, is built on these Dear Colleague letters. So the Dear Colleague letter was becoming the mechanism of choice. How can we regulate schools around the country without passing any new regulations? Right now, can these be addressed with an executive order or is this legislative? It's this pretty easy to stop it. So you can just withdraw the letters or pay no attention to them. I mean, it's, you know, when you, something is so, it has very little legal standing, it, has, it doesn't take much to get rid of it. So that's probably the most uh, significant thing that Secretary DeVos has done thus far. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Good, so she's on the track and as far as regulations are concerned, as far as you said. Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, there's, there's more to come on that front, but this is definitely happening. Now, what could she do in the way of teacher quality? Well, teacher quality is going to have to get around the union contracts. Right. And there's very little that can be done out of Washington in that regard other than a Supreme Court decision. I think the thing, so you, you might say the most important impact on education of this administration thus far is its appointment of a new justice of the Supreme Court. Right, and you're gonna take me to one law case, which would be Vergara. Uh, <coughs> right, in, in that case, um, well, the case that came up before the Supreme Court was decided four to four last year. Right. It's called the Friedrich case. And the Friedrich case uh, said that a teachers would not have to pay dues unless they wanted to. Right. Uh, and um, that's not the situation in many states around the country. And when that policy was changed in Wisconsin, 30% of the revenue was lost to the Wisconsin Education Association. So this is truly important to the union movement, that they have this power to collect money not only from their members but from anybody who is an employee of the system uh, on the grounds that we're representing you 
we're getting your salary up, so therefore you should help support us even if you don't want to. Well, the Supreme Court almost ruled no on that, but the Supreme Court split four to four. Everybody expects that if that comes back, there will be a majority to bring that right. process to an end. And the Vergara case, which went through the California state court system, these were, that's this, on teach. That's this is representing two girls who are in the Los Angeles school district, right? Right. And that case, I doubt, will get to the Supreme Court because mm -hmm. it was uh, a dispute over the meaning of the California Constitution. Right. It is, uh, the allegation by the plaintiff was that the uh, civil rights of minority students in the inner city were being adversely affected by the seniority rights of teachers, which allowed them to teach wherever they wanted and left the inexperienced teachers teaching the most disadvantaged kids. Right. So the ruling at the superior court level was that that was in violation of the California State Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. Mm -hmm. That's appealed to the appeals court, and the appeals court overturns the, the superior court which is the lowest level court in California. Despite its name, it's very odd that the Superior Court is actually the lowest court. Right. But nonetheless, that's where that case ends, and the California State Supreme Court doesn't hear the case. Now, it's very hard to get that case before the U.S. Supreme Court. So I don't think Vergara is going to be a case that's going to be litigated before uh, the nine justices in Washington. What do you think it's going to take, Paul, to break the gridlock, the, the dam in California in this regard. We've talked about uh, union dues. Uh, we have tried that on the ballot here in California under a different guise called paycheck protection, the idea that if you're a public employee, you don't have to give your dues to political contributions, uh, and that has failed miserably at the box office. You look at a situation like teacher tenure in the state legislature, and they actually got into that in this past session where in California you can receive tenure after two years on the job, and I believe in a lot of other states, it's, what, three years. But in California, it's only two. Um, the idea was put forward, and it was rejected. Why? The California Teachers Association laid its very heavy hand on it, and so down it went. You have sentimental arguments going on in the state capitol, Paul, that perhaps we should consider tax credits for teachers. Perhaps they should not be subject to state taxes because they don't get paid a lot of money, and it's hard to, to afford uh, living in California on a teacher's salary. You have a very subtle argument that it's hard to teach in California. You have a large Hispanic population for whom English is a second language. You have African-American pockets of California where there is, again, poverty and a lot of uh, social hardship as well, tough teaching conditions. But this all points, Paul, to status quo and nothing changing. The same arguments in Sacramento and anybody trying to institute reform getting shot down because of a teacher's union. What do you think it takes to change this in California? Well, you're the expert on California. <laughs> you live here part-time, so you're a Californian, too. <laughs> I, I, I am not. But uh, I will say that this Supreme Court decision will impact California just like it will any other state if, indeed, this case that's in the system working its way up finally reaches right. that level. And uh, the ruling comes down that uh, teachers don't have to pay that agency fee. All of a sudden, the California Teachers Association is faced with the potential of a third of its revenue disappearing. Mm -hmm. Now, the California Teachers Association is one of the major contributors to elections in the state of California. If its revenue flow is substantially cut, 
it's going to have consequences for political action, I would mm-hmm. suspect, unless it finds a way around that decision, finds a solution that allows it to uh, continue right. to collect these kinds of dues. Uh, so I would keep my eye on that development. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in terms of uh, getting a change in uh, through the state legislature, that's going to be very, very difficult. Um, and the state board seems to be hunkering down, trying to uh, avoid uh, addressing the issue of teacher quality. Uh, just uh, in July, there was a decision by the Board of Education, State Board of Education here in California, to say, okay, an effective teacher is any teacher who's qualified. Well, that sounds great, except that we know that getting a credential at a state university in education, which allows you to teach in a particular subject area, um, that's all very nice, but it has very little to do with effectiveness because all of the research, including my own, and I've done a lot of work on this particular topic, shows that an unqualified teacher is is as effective as a qualified one on average. It sounds incredible. But it it sounds like the value added of getting that credential on average is zero. And it's not like it's only my study that's found that. Every single study that's gone out there and tried to look at that, whether they're looking at this in North Carolina or in Florida or in California or in Texas, they all find the same thing. That these credentials are not preparing people to be effective teachers. So for the State Board of Education in the state of California to say a qualified teacher is an effective teacher is to ignore all the research on this and as a way of dodging the question of how do we make sure that we do have an effective teacher in every classroom and how do we make sure that we have an effective teacher serving the most needy students in our, in our central cities. Very good. I would point out that in 2019 in California there will be a new governor, a new superintendent of public instruction, and quite likely a new president of the California State Board of Education. So if there's going to be any change, in theory, that's what it began, but it's hard to see that change coming because they all kind of sort of see the... Well, Jerry Brown looked promising when he was running for office. He, after all, was the mayor of Oakland, and mayor of Oakland had introduced a number of reforms. It was moving forward. It was trying to address the problems of the students in, in Oakland and it had the support of the mayor, the strong support of the mayor. So when he arrives in Sacramento, you had every reason to believe that Jerry Brown would be a new force in education. But I think he looked at the political realities, and, and Brown is nothing if he's not politically savvy, and said, okay, I got to do what I can, and then where I can't do anything, I just have to accept reality. Exactly. Final question, Paul. We've had a lot of education causes crusades in California over the past couple of decades. We've had, we've had fights over school choice. We've had, we've had motions to have uh, charter schools. We've had discussions over bilingual education, all sorts of ways to address education reform in California. Looking at your education next poll, do you see anything in your data that suggests a certain energy, a certain, a certain issue that's going to bubble up? Well, there, we do see one thing, and that is that the, uh, there's a growing division of opinion between uh, those with less education and those with more education uh, in in the white community, with those with less education, 
um, less satisfied with their schools. Uh, you would have thought that the better educated would have a more critical eye about their local schools. But no, the less educated whites are more critical. Uh, they're less willing to continue to spend more money on the schools. And they're more willing to support vouchers. So I don't know if Trump is actually got a, a cut point within the white community that's going to allow him to mobilize a support base for some changes in education. But you can see some hints of that in the poll. Very interesting. Paul Peterson, thanks for stopping by today. Uh, safe travel. So by the time you're listening to this, you will have traveled east. <laughs> thanks for coming by today. Thank you, Bill. It's been great fun chatting with you. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th president of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and tell your friends all about us. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover fellows, most certainly including Paul Peterson, straight to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. I mentioned earlier that Paul Peterson's written a column for the latest edition of Eureka, Hoover's online publication devoted to California topics. That's on Hoover's website. For more on the Education Next poll, go to educationnext.org. They also have a Twitter feed, and that is, curiously enough, at educationnext. Anything else I forgot to mention, Paul? I think you covered it. Very good. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care, and thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.